Um, so this brings us on to our second speaker of the day. It's Dr. Alan Bates, who, amongst many other things, lectures in pathology at UCL. And uh, Alan's going to be talking to us today about London's Lost Anatomy Museums, and I think taking forward some of the things and delving deeper, maybe, some of the things that Sam's mentioned. So perhaps, Alan, if you'd like to take the stage. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Alberti and the Museums and Galleries History Group for inviting me along here to speak. I wanted to talk mainly about the 19th century, mid-19th century, and the public anatomy shows that flourished at that time, or popular anatomy shows, as you might call them. We're now in the building that has really the only substantial medical museum in London. And it's now a wonderful public museum, but it wasn't always. And there's a well-known list from the, the early 19th century, very soon after the College of Surgeons, or the Company of Surgeons as it then was, acquired the Hunterian collection of people who were allowed to come and visit, and the, they included peers of the realm, admirals of the fleet, and, of course, fellows of the Royal College of Surgeons. Now, I don't know if any admirals of the fleet ever turned up and asked to come in, but it doesn't really matter because the purpose of the list is perfectly clear. It's saying this is a social space for the upper echelons of society. If you come here, you'll only encounter the right sort of people. We don't just let anybody in. We only let in people who are someone or people with a letter of introduction from someone. And in that respect, it was like some of the medical museums that still exist on the continent. You can go along, and sometimes you can manage to talk your way in if you've got some kind of medical connection. But, so although they're open, they're free, they're not open to just anybody to wander in off the street. You have to have some kind of reason. Now, the museums I'm talking about are the kind where anyone who pays can go in. Why did they flourish in the 19th century? What was special about the 19th century? Well, they didn't start in the 19th century. I'll just show that list of the 19th century public museums. They're all in uh, an article in Medical History, and it's free online, so if you want to know where they were, that, that is where they were. None of them, none of the buildings are extant today, so there's nothing to see, sadly, if you and revisit these places. In the 18th century, which I'm not going to talk about other than just to mention, there were medical exhibits in commercial museums. And these were not specimens in pots. These were not real human bodies. They were various kinds of anatomical models. Anatomical model making has a long and distinguished history that I'm not going to go into. It didn't really take off in the UK as it did in continental Europe. And there are several reasons for that. It was really never accepted as a means of teaching by the medical profession. Now, there are, I gather, to this day... Colleges of medicine in the provinces that purport to teach anatomy without dissection. Well, 
They might say so, but I don't think so. You may as well purport to teach people to drive a London taxi without them ever actually coming to London. And that was always the view of the medical profession. If you were going to learn medicine, you had to use dissection of real bodies. So waxwork makers on the continent looked for other markets, and they found them in these commercial museums. And in many ways, models were ideal for the commercial market because people didn't necessarily want to see a dissection. There was something rather unpleasant about it. Uh, this, was a, this is the advertising of 1748 for a wax model from Paris, and there's one from Rackstraw's Museum, which I'm, I'm not going to talk about, but just to show that these things were present in museums, they attracted an audience. But they were a minor component of what was there. What changed in the 19th century? Well, firstly, the population of London. There were more people coming in from the provinces. They had different kinds of occupations. There were more <coughs> low-grade, non-manual workers. They had fair salaries. They had more time off. They weren't self-employed. They had Saturday afternoons off. What would they do? Well, you could go to a museum. There weren't that many to choose from. There was the British Museum, but that, that was a museum where you had to make an appointment. You had, you had to be a respectable person to go around the museum. There was a market for shows where you just turned up and paid your money. And the other thing that happened, of course, was the Westport murders in Edinburgh. Uh, the trial was 1828, 1829. Burke was hanged, hair escaped. It was in all the newspapers. Newspapers were a relatively new thing. News was circulating. Anatomy really took off. Somebody wrote, anatomy turned to gold. Now, the general public believed that there was a great outcry and a great revulsion against anatomy after the Westport murders. Actually, it made it more popular. This is Robert Knox, kindly supplied by the, the College of Surgeons in Edinburgh. This is a very splendid waxwork of him in their new, newly refurbished museum. His classes reached a record size after the Westport murders. And there was great popular interest in anatomy. People wanted to see anatomy, but they didn't necessarily want to see dissection. Most people know that after the Anatomy Act of 1832, which provided a source of pauper bodies for dissection, there was a popular fear of actually being dissected. There was also a great popular dislike of going into a dissecting room at all. It was regarded as a very unpleasant activity. The, the bodies for dissection were not embalmed. They were not refrigerated. They were fresh or, or not fresh after a few days. Uh, so dissections didn't take place at all in the summer. Scotland in the winter was quite a good place, but you, you had to leave the windows open to, to keep them cool. You could dissect with your hat on but you, you could hardly keep your overcoat on, so some people got pneumonia. If you cut your finger, you could get blood poisoning. People literally died of dissecting room injuries. They were martyrs to the cause of anatomy, so it was something that, although 
anyone could pay for an anatomy course and go in and see dissections, people didn't necessarily want to do. It wasn't a very comfortable business. So why not look at some models? Well, after the difficulty in the supply of cadavers following the, the Anatomy Act forced him out of business, Robert Knox did come to London. He spent most of his life in London, and he was briefly the curator of a public anatomical show, which he started in collaboration with Felix Thiebert, who we met in Paris. And Thiebert shipped over these plaster anatomical models, and they opened in the Cosmorama rooms, which were in Regent Street. Again, there's nothing to see now. And it didn't do terribly well. One of the difficulties with museums at this time was that although there was an audience, it wasn't that great. There were trains, there were omnibuses. There wasn't the, the big population of tourists. There wasn't the influx of people from all over Britain that there is now to London. So once you've been open for a while, most people had seen it, and they probably didn't want to see it again. So uh, there was the old Victorian joke about plays. When it opened, it was a tour de force, and after a couple of years, it was forced to tour because everyone had seen it that wanted to see it. And Knox, despite being a great showman, was reluctant to become too commercial. He wanted to teach the public anatomy. He wanted to be the anatomy teacher that he'd been in Edinburgh. He wanted to give detailed anatomical lectures, and he was really hoping that medical students and people with an interest in medicine would turn up. And he was really going for the wrong audience. He had this dream of being a popular anatomy teacher, of, of bringing real scientific anatomy to everybody, and he never quite realised it. And, and he really got the wrong audience because the Cosmorama rooms, if you could go back in time, I, I'd love to see Knox and his museum. But there were other wonderful attractions, and the one I'd really like to see was the singing mouse. So that sort of sets the tone. for the. It was an entertainment space, basically. The other problem was they were plaster. Plaster models, uh, I hope no one here is involved in plaster modeling. They, they can be rather lifeless, they're fragile, they're very heavy to transport, they're expensive to make. Uh, the, plaster models have more the impression of being in a gallery of Greek statues rather than of seeing the life. So there were some problems there. And Knox being Knox, he was fiercely loyal to his own models and he said the only way waxworks would throw any light on anatomy as if you melted them down and made them into candles. But he lost out to Signor Asati and his Florentine Venus. If you go to Florence, if you go in La Specola, you'll see a beautiful collection of anatomical waxworks. It, it was one of the great centres of anatomical wax modelling. And this model really was a revelation when it came to London in the 1840s. One of the problems that this hints at is who was the audience for anatomy shows and what were they hoping to learn? Ever since the Enlightenment, the anatomy had been a legitimate 
field of inquiry for educated people. It was part of self-knowledge. It was reasonable to want to understand the human body and how it was put together. It was part of artistic training. It was part of general education. But there was something perhaps slightly personal, slightly private about the body that made people uneasy. So you can see two things from the flyer. One is separate days for ladies to avoid any kind of embarrassment at discussing various parts of anatomy. Ladies and gentlemen would hear the lectures separately. And there's a surgeon giving the lectures. This, this is not just anybody. This is a professional man talking to his audience in a professional way. And so this was a step down from classical studies of anatomy, which gentlemen studied to enhance their self-understanding and, of course, to enable them to communicate with their medical advisors. However ineffective the physician was, he spoke Latin, he knew the terminology, and gentlemen who employed the services of physicians would be able to carry on a conversation. They, they knew anatomical terminology, they, they knew a little bit of Latin, they could have a, a sensible interaction about their bodies. And this was bringing this down in English to the next level of society, giving people some degree of knowledge so that when they went to see a physician or a surgeon, they could communicate about the parts of the body in a more meaningful way. This is a rather rare example of a papier-mâché model. As you can imagine, it's nice, it's detailed, it's light, but it's awfully fragile. So they lost out also to waxworks. One of the comparisons that's always made is between wax models and various artistic representations of the human form, and rightly so. This is from the store at the Victoria and Albert Museum. If you're going to make an anatomical model that stands up, it has to have some kind of metal framework. You, you can't make a standing waxwork out of solid wax. It doesn't work. And it has to have a solid thorax and abdomen. This is filled up with plaster. So you can't have internal organs that take out. The structural integrity just isn't there. The whole thing would collapse. So they really have to lie down just for practical technical considerations. So here, here you have the first problem. You, you've got this naked body lying down. Now, how exactly are you going to present this? What, what can we look for in the mid-19th century. Well, this, this is from Las Becala. It, it's not that good quality. This was early days of digital photography, and the light's not that great in there. Uh, this is the anatomical Venus. This is one of the finest ones still to be seen. And you can see on the right of the picture, the internal organs have been taken out. So as the lecturer gives his lecture, he gradually removes each organ. He talks about it. You can see how the organs are related to one another, and you can see different layers of bodily anatomy. It's a gradual exposure. You start with the fully dressed body. You remove the, the sheet covering it. It's almost like a virtual autopsy in wax, but it's bloodless and it's very agreeable. And 
you, you can see from the pose of the model, it's a bit like Titian's Venus. And I think this was intentional. And the reason for this was that the, there's, I think, an awareness that people could be uncomfortable looking at a model of a naked body in, in front of other people. So what do you do? Well, you put it in a situation that's considered acceptable. Now, even Queen Victoria liked art. Even Queen Victoria looked at statues and, and paintings. She, she loved these things. So th th there's something that anyone could look at, and you've made your anatomical waxwork as artistic as possible. You, you've put it into the one category that Victorian people would have been used to seeing nudes in company, and that was art. She's awake. She, pe people say they look alive. Well, the eyes are open. The, the hair is, is braided. They, they keep themselves well. I, I knew a very senior anatomical pathology technician, and he went on a course in America on embalming, and he came back and he said, Americans look better dead than they do alive. <laughs> but so did the wax models. And people have read all kinds of things into this, but really, I, I think it's trying to make it socially acceptable. Do you want to go into a museum and see a waxwork of a, a rotting corpse? No. You want to see an attractive body, someone that doesn't look like they've suffered, someone that looks like they really want to, to show off their internal organs. And, and um, the, the, the only thing I, I, I can say to people that say that, that these anatomy exhibitions excited lubricious thoughts was exactly the same as was said by a doctor from the Royal Free 150 years ago, well, it never had that effect on me. And although the Venuses did better... There's the, the anatomical Adonis, and there was also an anatomical Samson. There were male and female models presented in, in the best way possible. It's putting the best possible gloss on death. And this, again, is from Le Speculer. The most successful of the popular anatomy shows was that of Dr. Joseph Kahn, there he is. He was a German by birth and came to London in the early 1850s and opened his museum in Oxford Street. There were probably two or three hundred exhibits, mostly waxworks, some models of embryos, some drawings of what you might see down a microscope, and later on, perhaps even some microscopes for people to look down, uh, but possibly one or two preserved specimens in pots, but that, that was a really minor feature of it. He'd started off as an anatomical modeler himself in Germany, and then he'd come here, and he had two lines of business. One was running his museum, and the other was supplying models to others who wanted them, and Again, he didn't have any success supplying them to the medical profession. He, he supplied them to other popular exhibitors. Now, was he a quack? This was said about him at the time. It's been said since. The medical people in the audience will know 
that a quack is anyone with qualifications inferior to yours who somehow manages to make more money. And this is extremely infuriating. He gave public lectures. He was sufficiently educated to write an atlas of embryology. It was a bit derivative, but he possessed a level of knowledge easily the equivalent of most medical practitioners of the day. His qualifications were probably self-awarded, although it's a bit difficult to check. And there were medical degrees that could more or less just, just be bought for a fee in any case. And, of course, remember, before the 1858 Medical Act, there was no medical register, so there wasn't a difference between registered and unregistered doctors. He wouldn't have been able to practice medicine. He didn't have any qualifications to enable him to practice medicine, but that doesn't make you a quack. Sigmund Freud couldn't practice medicine, which was why he became a psychoanalyst. It was simply because his qualification wasn't recognized in the UK. And the, so that was true of German doctors for the, the next 100 years or so. There's the flyer for his museum. Separate days for the ladies. Initially, it was approved of by the Lancet, who sent someone to look round it. We don't know who they sent. Maybe Thomas Wackley himself had a look. They were very happy with, with this museum. Of course, that was partly because the, the, the Lancet was a radical publication that resented the influence of the royal colleges. But th they were quite satisfied that, that this provided some medical education. So what kind of experience did people have when they went in there? Well, in a sense, there's, there's no way of knowing. There's, there's been a lot written about what the purpose of these museums was, but it's very hard to extract what your visitors take away. When, when people go to an art gallery, do they have a profoundly moving artistic experience or are they just mildly curious? It's difficult to know. And it's really difficult to know how much people learned or whether it just passed half an hour when they had nothing to do, whether it was a bit of a laugh, whether they worried that they had some of the diseases that were on display. What kind of things were on display? Well, lots of things about syphilis, which, of course, was a big problem. Smallpox was small because syphilis was the great pox. There was a lot of syphilitic disease about People were very very concerned about it and it was a source of medical knowledge about things that they probably wouldn't have liked to ask their normal medical advisor it was an opportunity to, to go to an environment and speak to a medical practitioner when you were surrounded by these models of syphilitic disease you could ask all kinds of questions that you maybe wouldn't normally ask and also there was a lot about reproduction. You, you've got to get people through the door. It's no good thinking that people are going to be interested in a lecture on the lymphatic drainage of the spleen. It's not going to work. He, he, he had to try and get the crowds in, so he gave lectures on men with tails and abuses of the generative organs. And the, the information about reproduction was probably extremely useful because... There was a great deal of ignorance about. There's, there's this sort of idea that because people, if you like, were living more in connection with nature because people were more likely to be related to people who lived on farms or in the countryside, that they somehow had an understanding of these things. But 
people's knowledge of what we'd now call reproductive physiology was very sketchy. And um, the, the sort of famous old joke about the Victorians not having female orgasms, well, they, they knew all about this, but it was very widely believed, even amongst medical practitioners, that ovulation occurred at orgasm, which was one reason that there, were, there was so much opprobrium in Victorian England for what we now call single mothers, because you could not get pregnant without consent. People really did not understand. And people could come here, and they could learn about the cycle of ovulation. They could learn about what we'd now call natural family planning. They, they could acquire a lot of useful information, and thereby was the problem. That's where it was, not far from Piccadilly. It's the building in the middle. It's all gone now, I'm afraid. You've seen that before. I have no idea what the museum looked like inside. That's what the one in Liverpool is supposed to have looked like, but I think that's probably a bit optimistic, even for the Liverpool one. And that's the drawing of Kahn's anatomical Venus, which is probably not dissimilar from this one that's from the archives of the Wellcome Museum. What happened to all the models? How did they get lost? Well, 1857... The Obscene Publications Act, this applied to anatomy museums. The models were seized. They were smashed up with a hammer in front of the magistrates, and the pieces were given back to Khan. Now, personally, I think that's an act of vandalism more or less akin to going to the National Gallery and cutting up all the canvases with nudes on them. But it was really regarded that these were corrupting. Why were they corrupting? Well, the one thing that everybody knows about the Obscene Publications Act is that in the Lady Chatterley trial, the judge said, is this the sort of book you would like your wife or your servants to read? And everybody has a giggle because they haven't got any servants to read the book. But the point he was making was, it may be all right for you, an educated man, to read it, but you wouldn't really like your wife to read it. And what if the lower classes read it? What if they went and did these things? This was the whole point of the Obscene Publications Act. It, it may be acceptable for you, an educated person, but it's not acceptable for everybody else. And, of course, there were medical museums with medical practitioners going in them. They were capable of dealing with these things. The general public, it was argued, did not have the level of education, they didn't have the level of self-control, and they didn't have the social pressures that the middling classes had to behave, the, the, the lower classes might get up to anything if only they got the information. So any information they inquire, acquired about reproduction would corrupt them because they, they might actually use it to influence their, their lives. They, they might actually start to practice birth control and do other unseemly things. So that was the end of the museum. And it was the end of public anatomy museums in general. Many of them we know very little about. Rymers was, was another one, presumably with a similar type of exhibits. There's a, an anatomical Venus at, at Rymers. There's one of the books that Kahn sold about nervous exhaustion, with, which, again, prejudiced the medical establishment against him because he, he was pandering to, to the worried well and, and selling venereal disease cures and cures for other kinds of sexual dysfunction. 
anatomy museums did subsist, and the Liverpool Museum ran until the mid-20th century. But in London, by the, the mid-19th century, that was the end of the public anatomy museum. It never really recovered. And I do think it's a great pity. Uh, I, I think the decline in museums in general is a great pity. Uh, I've earned my living doing pathology and anatomy for my whole working life. And I learned pathology looking at specimens in a museum. I teach pathology with museum specimens. And when I went to the Gunter von Hagen's exhibition, I, I saw a lot of people fascinated by what they saw and learning a lot from this. And yet, there was a great deal of adverse comment from some of the medical royal colleges, including one that I belong to, and some learned societies, including some that I belong to, who didn't ask their members but just said, we don't want this kind of thing. And I, I think it's an amazing legacy of these popular museums that makes now anatomy and pathology stand out as the only scientific subjects that positively seem not to want to engage with the public but to maintain some kind of, of bizarre secrecy and I think that unless we change we're going to find ourselves and we have found ourselves very isolated and very misunderstood so finally a little quote from Robert Knox's quieter brother thank you Thank you.